thank you for that introduction. Uh, don't know if I can ever live up to that. I mean, I might have been in school for 10 years, but I don't have a master's like you do. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, we're going to continue our um, series in the book of Judges. Tonight, we are going through Judges 17. So, earlier this week, one of my friends showed me something pretty funny uh, on Twitter. I don't know, maybe you guys saw it too, but it was a tweet from this, this uh, I guess they're just a liberal seminary, and the tweet said, Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Yes, plants. And this tweet had a picture of, uh, I guess it was their chapel service, and they had maybe six or eight potted plants sitting on the ground, and then there was... There were people sitting in the, in the seats looking at the plants and there was somebody in front of the plants holding a microphone confessing her sins to the plants. So, I don't know, I just thought that was kind of absurd, just some, something really silly and, and ridiculous. Actually, if, if you guys ever listened to Albert Moeller's debriefing, uh, he, he talked about it yesterday, I think, so if you want more information on, on that funny situation, you can check it out. But I just thought that was a funny tweet because it, it struck a chord with what we're going to study from the Bible tonight as we continue through the book of Judges. The events from Judges chapter 17 to 21 are a bit different from what we've read in the book so far. Most of, the, most of Judges has detailed the stories of the various judges and their exploits. Some of the judges that we read about had short accounts like Othniel. Some of them, like Deborah or Gideon, Samson, they had way longer accounts. Through reading these stories, we gained an understanding of what Israel was like during this time period. Although each of the individual judges had their own unique exploits, we quickly uncovered an obvious pattern. And that pattern is that God's people keep turning away from him, suffer for it, receive deliverance through one of his judges, but eventually turn away from God again. How did Israel deteriorate over and over during this time period? Essentially, they failed over and over again because of apostasy. They abandoned God. They turned away and began to worship idols. God commanded them to drive out the Canaanites. They didn't do that. Instead of driving them out, they made covenants with them. Instead of destroying their pagan altars, the Israelites served idols and forsook the Lord. It all began with tolerating or turning a blind eye to God's commands against idolatry and those who served idols. It continued when they slowly, gradually began to admire these idols and idolatrous peoples. And eventually, the Israelites embraced idols for themselves. There is a slippery slope that begins with compromise, specifically when you compromise with God's word. The story in chapter 17 does not detail the account of another judge. It's different from so many of the other chapters we've covered the past few months because it's got more to do with the thematic content of this book. We're going to look at a story that illustrates the apostasy in Israel during this time period. We'll see firsthand how the low moral standards and twisted religious conceptions were prevalent in Israel. The, the end of the book of Judges shows how everything deteriorates rapidly when God's people turn their backs on trying to live in obedience. Judges 17 tells a story in and of itself, but it also serves as a prologue to the tragic ending that we will read in the coming weeks. Thomas Constable points out that the stories in this epilogue chapters 17 through 21, illustrate conditions in Israel at this time. The first story of Micah and the Danites 
which is chapters 17 and 18, shows how far the Israelites departed from God in the, in the religious and spiritual aspects of their life. In the second story of the Levite and his concubine, which we'll get to in chapters 19 and 21, shows the effect of religious apostasy on Israel's civil and domestic life. Before we dive into the text, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I just come to you now and ask that you would speak to us through your word. Pray that um, we would just be thinking about what you have to say to us, help us to understand, help us to pay attention, and I ask that um, you would speak through me and, and um, allow us to, to learn from your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. So let's begin by reading tonight's passage in its entirety, so just so that we have a fundamental understanding of the passage. It's not as long as some of the other chapters, so I'll just read it all in one go and come back to it um, during the talk. And there was a man of Mount Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said unto his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from thee about which thou cursed and spakest of also in mine ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my son. And when he had restored the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver unto the Lord for my hand, for my son, to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will restore it unto thee. Yet he restored the money unto his mother, and his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the founder, who made thereof a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a house of gods and made an ephod and teraphim and consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And there was a young man out of Bethlehem, Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed out of the city from Bethlehem to sojourn where he could find a place. And he came to Mount Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said unto him, Whence comest thou? And he said unto him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem, Judah, and I go to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said unto him, Dwell with me, and be unto me a father and a priest, and I will give thee ten shekels of silver by the year, and a suit of apparel, and thy victuals. So the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man was unto him as one of his sons. And Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, and was in the house of Micah. Then said Micah, Now I know that the Lord will do me good, seeing I have a Levite to my priest. So that is Judges 17. And if you're taking notes, this is going to be a simple two-point message. The story of Judges, chapter 17, shows us that idolatry damages our relationship with God when we worship the wrong thing and when we worship the wrong way. First of all, we worship the wrong thing. Let's look at what Micah did here, starting uh, in verse 1. Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. We don't know too much about Micah other than the fact that he lived in the mountains of Ephraim, probably lived with or in close proximity to his own mother. His name, the name Micah, means who is like Yahweh, or Yahweh, the incomparable one. There is a lot of irony seeped into this entire chapter. Last week, when we finished the story of Samson, uh, I was talking to somebody um, afterwards when we were having our discussion time, and we talk, talked about Judges chapter 16, and he said that uh, Judges 16 is like a soap opera, right? That whole thing between Samson and Delilah, 
uh, Samson's hubris and his humiliation and, and his final revenge. If you looked at the overall story arc of Judges 16, you can see how dramatic it is, right? There's a lot of powerful emotive qualities to it. You see love, lust, greed, hate, pride, despair, revenge. Those are all universal human emotions that we see played out on a grand scale, far beyond your typical human experience. If the story of Samson is like a comic book, it would be a lot like the superhero comics that Big Papa alluded to when he you know, mentioned that, you know, that's what I'm into. And I don't think a lot of people here read comics, maybe other than Zach and Pastor Ray, I guess. But, you know, if you've watched Marvel movies or whatever, that's a soap opera, essentially. Maybe it's a soap opera that men can enjoy, but it's a soap opera. Um, but if Judges 16 is, is like a soap opera, then I'm going to say that Judges 17 is like a satire so if we're going back to the comic book analogy, Judges 17, is, it's kind of like Mad Magazine. You know, I don't even know if people here know what Mad Magazine is because it's, it's kind of old, but it's, it's just a, a comic book that's all about sat, satirizing you know, popular culture. And when you look at Judges 17, there is satire here because it's almost like cartoonish in terms of the disobedience of the people that are involved in the story. The, there, there is just so much tomfoolery. Like I said earlier, Micah's name means who is like Yahweh. Well, nobody in this chapter, I guess. It's, the narrative just seems to highlight the absurdity of the situation and the absurdity of these people. It's almost like there's this garish neon sign pointing at Micah and his mother just to highlight the actions of people, the bizarre actions of people who turned their backs on God. Let's read verse two again. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, here is the silver with me, I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. <laughs> it's funny, right? So much to unpack here. First of all, Micah stole 1,100 shekels of silver from his own mother. Don't really know why, doesn't say why, but the fact that he did so, it says a lot about his character. What kind of man would steal from his own mother? Shame of it, right? That is just wrong. He stole from his own mom. And 1,100 shekels of silver, that was, that was a lot of money. A shekel, just a unit of weight. Really difficult to calculate the exact value of, of that in American dollars. But later on in verse 10, we see that 10 shekels is acceptable as a yearly wage. So 1,100 shekels, that's a lot. Uh... I was an English major. I don't know math. No, I'm just playing. That's 110 years worth of wages, right? I think it is. If it's not, just scrub this part from the audio recording. <laughs> Secondly, Micah's dialogue indicates that his mother was so upset by this theft that she pronounced a curse upon the thief. At the time she placed the curse, obviously she didn't realize that her own son had stolen her silver. With the details that the text provides us, it's, I don't know what kind of curse she spoke. All we know is that she pronounced some sort of curse, said it in Micah's presence. Maybe, maybe she placed a curse on Micah's family. <laughs> maybe she said something about his mother or something, who knows, not knowing that the thief was her own son. And looking at this situation from the perspective of a, of a reader, I think it's fair to say that the godly should not respond to a, a theft with curses. Rather, the godly should respond with prayer to God. When others steal from us or deal some sort of unjust action, 
we shouldn't curse them. We should pray to God for help in the situation. The world might say that anger or hate or revenge are, or, or curses, the world might say that those are all perfectly acceptable responses when someone does you wrong. But God's people are not supposed to live like how the world lives. So even Micah's mother's response to the theft is telling for her character as well. She and Micah, they're both Israelites. They're supposed to be God's people. She named her son a word that means who is like Yahweh. And it seems like that doesn't really mean anything to either of them. They both have this outward appearance of godliness, but their lives don't reflect it based on what we read in this chapter. Nonetheless, Micah eventually confesses the theft to his mother and returns her silver to her. At this point, the mother does a complete 180, right? She went from cursing the thief. She, she could have been like, you know, she could have been so upset, cursing the thief, you know, a pox on this thief's family, you know, all that. And all of a sudden, oh, bless you, my son. May you be blessed by the Lord, right? It, it, it's a very unusual reaction. It just seems like she thought she could maybe undo her previous curse. It's a very amusing scene. And the way that the text presents it all, it's just so matter of fact. I think it is quite funny when you think about it. Initially, she cursed this unknown thief. Now, she wanted to bless the thief in the name of the Lord. But when we see what she does next, she has essentially taken the Lord's name in vain. Verse 3 says, So when he had returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, his mother said, I had wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son, to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I will return it to you. Micah returned the silver that he stole. His mom then claimed that she had dedicated all of the silver to the Lord. She would give the silver Micah had just returned to her back to him so that he could use it for God. So, that sounds nice to begin with, right? On the surface, it sounds nice. However, she goes on to say that the silver would be used to make a carved image and a molten image. It's not explicitly stated whether this graven image would be an idol or some other false god or some representation of Yahweh, but either way, that would be a bad thing. God expressly forbade the creation of graven images with the second commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, when God presents the Ten Commandments to Moses, the second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So you might notice that in Judges 17.3, Micah's mother mentions both a carved image and a molded image. It's possible that the carved image refers to the idol itself, while the molded image could refer to the, the base for the idol, what it stands on. However, it's also possible that this could be one of those idols that was just carved out of wood and overlaid with molten silver. But whatever it was, it was a clear violation of the second commandment. Even the term carved image or graven image, depending on your translation, that is language that is associated with the golden calf that Aaron made for the Israelites in the wilderness back in Exodus chapter 32. In that story, the Israelites were tired of waiting for Moses to return, so they, they pressured Aaron into constructing 
this golden calf, which they then worshipped as an idol, God ended up punishing the Israelites severely, and about 3,000 men were killed by the sword right then and there when Moses returned to the people. Now, do you think that Micah and his mother knew about the second commandment? Do you think they knew what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness, the people that were worshiping the golden calf? They probably knew. It was still pretty recent history for them. They probably knew, but they just didn't care. This is a woman that named her son after Yahweh, so she probably had some knowledge of her history, some knowledge of God. But for whatever reason, they were able to look at that story, look at that history, and not see the parallels with what they were doing in their lives right then and there. Verse four says, thus he returned the silver to his mother. Then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to the silversmith and he made it into a carved image and a molded image and they were in the house of Micah. In verse four, we see that the mother only uses 200 shekels of silver to produce the idol even though one verse earlier, she said she would wholly dedicate the silver in its entirety to God. So this is clearly not a woman who has a sense of consistency. She is not even true to her word. Micah might be a thief, but his mother is a liar. The other thing that stands out is that we see how simple it is for her to make the idol. All she needed to do was you know, stroll over to the silversmith, bring the silver, and he'll get it done. You would think that in a godly society, somebody, maybe the silversmith, would be like, hey, hold up. You want to make an idol? You want me to make you an idol? That's crazy, right? Like, I'm not doing that. But that's not what happens here. The, what this straightforward narrative indicates is that this is a time period in Israel where it is very easy to make an idol. You just go to the store, you go to the silversmith, give them your money, and they'll turn it out for you. It just goes to show you how bent their society has become. We have seen repeatedly throughout Judges that there is this cycle that takes place. Israel is in good standing with God. Then they turn away from him. Then they get punished. Then they ask God for help. Then God sends them a judge, and then they're delivered. The story in Judges 17 shows us what their nation was like during the part of the cycle when Israel had turned away from God. And this is what it's like. Verse 5 says, The man Micah had a shrine and made an ephod and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. We see that things continued to escalate. It started off pretty badly. It started off with a son stealing from his own mother. Then the mother lies and not only lies, but she steals from God. Then Micah and his mother construct an idol. And now Micah sets up a shrine. A shrine is a small temple, essentially. It's a, it's a place you go to to worship a, a deity. You can also call it a sanctuary. God had already commanded the Israelites not to construct additional sanctuaries. That was an explicit command. His people were supposed to make their offerings at the tabernacle in a city called Shiloh, which was likely only a short distance away from where Micah lived. In constructing the shrine, Micah disregarded God's command not to build or use other sanctuaries besides the tabernacle. Do you know who else constructed sanctuaries or shrines to worship their false idols? 
the Canaanites, except they called them the high places. You might remember that God commanded the Israelites to destroy those. But what we see here is that Micah, instead of destroying them, he emulated them. He constructs his own high place. He constructs his own shrine. Further compounding his sin is that Micah made additional idols as well. In the text, these are referred to as household idols. So these were gods that were probably worshipped in order to gain some sort of prosperity or health in, within the family or in the household. Micah also makes his own ephod. An ephod is a special garment worn by a priest of Israel. So clearly, Micah has familiarity with the practices of true worship because Israelite priests would wear this special garment in the actual tabernacle of God. And the ephod is something that gets described in great detail. Uh, If you look at Exodus chapter 28, for example, there's a lot of detail about what this garment is. So it is something that is important. But Micah created his own. So it's... It is telling that Micah has some sort of understanding of the concept of the ephod, but he didn't understand enough to recognize that what he was doing was actually wrong. Or maybe, maybe he just didn't care. Either way, he was sinning against God. Finally, Micah consecrated one of his own sons as the priest for this shrine. So priests are supposed to be from the line of Aaron as described in Exodus chapter 40 verses 12 to 15. By appointing one of his own sons as a priest, Micah disregarded yet another one of God's direct commands. If you step back and and think about what Micah's actions mean on on a grander scale, he's essentially setting up his own religion All of the things that Micah instituted from the shrine, the ephod, the household idols, his son as his priest, all of those things indicate a false religion. Everything that Micah created came from himself and not from God. In fact, he directly opposed God by implementing all those things. He created a false religion to please himself. He created, he created a religion to please man, not to, not to worship God. And why did he go to such great lengths? It's because, as it says in verse 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 6 is the key verse of this chapter. It is one of the ongoing themes of the entire book of Judges. It succinctly summarizes the theme of the book. Israel did not have a human king, but God was the king of Israel. However, because his people disregarded his authority, because they disobeyed his laws, they were, practically speaking, for all intents and purposes, living as though they didn't have a king. Kings set and enforce the standards, but in Israel, people were setting their own standards. Everyone acted as they pleased. The result of this is chaos and violence, as we will see in the following chapters of Judges. Now, we modern people can read this story, and it seems obvious to us that Micah was setting up his own religion. He and his mother had to have known Israel's history. They had to have known about the second commandment. They had to have known 
about the golden calf. For, for us, it's kind of surprising. Like, how can they do that? How can they not stop themselves from going down this path that is obviously against God? It just looks like, like they're blatantly ignoring God. But if you think about it, sometimes we do the same thing. Like on some level, we are a lot like, Mike, a lot like Micah. We might not physically construct a shrine filled with molded idols, but we build emotional shrines in our hearts. Whatever else that we look to in life in order to feel a sense of peace, security, and love, that's our idol. Elise Fitzpatrick, in her book, Idols of the Heart, writes, it's in the covenantal nature of worship to believe that your God can bless or curse you. That's always how idols function in our hearts. We sell ourselves to them and we believe that the loss of them will be an unbearable affliction, a curse. That's why they are so powerful in our lives. When we idolize something, we center our trust and love on ourselves our abilities, our desires, and anything other than God. Is that too general? How about if you just think about it like this, right? Like, if you idolize school, everything that you do is going to revolve around getting good grades. Do you freak out if you get a bad grade? Do you feel jealousy if somebody does better than you? And even if you do do as well as you want to do, you'll continually be disappointed because you'll see that school is just a means to an end and you've trained your heart to seek your peace in your accomplishments. If you idolize money, everything you do in life is going to be money-orientated. Your primary motivation will be to do whatever it takes to earn more money. You might make a lot of money, but you'll want more and you'll be continually disappointed because the money that you do have will never be enough. If you idolize your job, everything you do in life is gonna be oriented around your career goals and your success. You might sacrifice your spiritual welfare for the sake of working extra hours so that you can gain the approval of your boss. Your life will revolve around your career aspirations and you'll continually be disappointed because there will always be a position or a step or a goal above you just out of reach. If you idolize a romantic partner, everything you do is gonna be about chasing that dream. If you idolize a specific person, you're gonna be destroyed when she rejects you or he rejects your interest. And even if things do work out, if you idolize your lover, you'll be continually disappointed because he or she will never live up or measure up to the image of perfection that you have in your mind. For, for many of us, we don't see our idolatry when we're deep in the midst of it. Our vision is limited because we're doing what is right in our own eyes. We, we lie to ourselves, sometimes without even realizing it, by telling ourselves that when we have what we want, that's when we'll be content. But the Bible tells us that true contentment only comes from God. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. A life that leans on our own understanding leads to idolatry because we're trusting something other than God to truly satisfy us. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses five to six, says this. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, 
in an uninhabited salt land. You see, the man who trusts in something other than God is like a thirsty shrub in the desert, parched with an unquenchable thirst. There's no satisfaction in that. Let's continue through the story of Judges 17. And this brings us to the second principle that we learn from the story. The second principle we learn is that we can worship the wrong way. Verse 7 says, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah. He was a Levite and was staying there. Now we're introduced to another major character of the story arc, a man who is only referred to as a Levite. During this time period, the Levite tribe did not receive a designated specific land as their own, unlike the other tribes of Israel. However, what they did receive was a number of cities within the designated uh, territories of the other tribes. So the Levites did have their own designated cities where they were supposed to live. This particular Levite had been living in the city of Bethlehem, which was not a Levite city. The text clearly indicates that Bethlehem was a city of Judah. The fact that this Levite had been living in Bethlehem lets the reader know right off the bat that this particular individual had a low view of God because he chose to live somewhere other than where God had instructed the Levites to live. Just like Micah, this Levite also did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 8 says, The man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he could find a place. Then he came to the mountains of Ephraim to the house of Micah as he journeyed. Continuing the theme of disobedience to God and doing whatever was right in one's own eyes, the Levite wandered away from Bethlehem and this Levite eventually found himself in the hill country and that is how he met Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? So he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. This Levite likely wasn't journeying around the countryside like a masterless samurai or a wandering cowboy or anything cool like that. He was just probably looking for work so he could find a place to earn his keep, somewhere where he could earn his keep and just live there. Most likely, he was looking, for, looking around for a job as a priest, which was another violation of God's commands. Understand that not every Levite was qualified to be a priest in God's tabernacle. Only those who were specifically from the line of Aaron were meant to serve in the role of priest, as you can see if you look in a text such as Numbers chapter 3. So this Levite was not qualified to be a priest. Verse 10, Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes, and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Micah offered this Levite a job. Perhaps Micah decided that he needed to, I don't know, upgrade his priesthood. Maybe his son that he ordained earlier or consecrated earlier, maybe he thought his son wasn't doing a good enough job. Or maybe, maybe he just thought, oh, having a genuine Levite, you know, that's a level up, you know, that's going to be even, that's going to be even better. When Micah asks the Levite 
to be a father and a priest to him. Micah is asking the Levite to be a spiritual leader, an advisor, and an elder in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense. This is a position of high honor. Although the tribe of Levi had been appointed for priestly service, those who could serve in the tabernacle of God were supposed to be from the tribe of Aaron. This Levite was not from the tribe of Aaron, or the line of Aaron, excuse me. He was not from the line of Aaron. And obviously, Micah's shrine that he made for himself, his shrine was not God's tabernacle. Nonetheless, Micah offered to pay the Levite 10 shekels of silver a year and provide him with clothing and food, and the Levite accepted. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Verse 11. The Levite is an example of someone who is willing to sell out just to get his. He chose to serve an idol because he was going to receive payment. He was going to get 10 shekels a year. Man, if only he knew how much money Micah really had, right? (laughs) Especially since they only used 200 to make those idols. This Levite did not serve in order to glorify God, but he served in order to make his money, to make his living. And for some reason, Micah felt like, he felt so strongly about this that he felt like he gained a son. Ironically, Micah thought that he was maintaining and even improving his relationship with God, but in actuality, he was violating God's commands. Thinking about how this relates to our lives, I think if we just look around in the world, we can see how this Levite's principles easily come into play, right? I mean, all I have to do is say the words prosperity gospel, and what do you think of? Or who do you think of? You know, it's like preachers that deceive their congregations in the the guise of serving God, but they deceive their congregations and swindle them. They teach them that Jesus is a means of attaining wealth, attaining good health, while they make a bunch of money right in their Gulf streams or whatever it is, some sort of extravagant lifestyle. But it's clear that they're kind of raking it in. If you believe in God because you want to make money, then money is your God. You can't pretend to say that you serve God, but your motivation is money. If you're living your best life now, you're heading for hell. And I think and I hope that for all of us, that is not an issue. I don't don't think anyone here who serves the church, who serves God, I don't think anyone here does it with the motivation of amassing wealth. But it doesn't always have to be about money, does it? It doesn't always have to be about money. We can serve with wrong intentions, all over the place. You know, we have idols that are not limited to material wealth or even good health. Do you serve God? Do you serve the church and do things because you want to win praise from man? Do you serve in order to gain the approval or the praise of others? Do you serve because you want to feel good that other people recognize your contributions to the church, that they praise you for your sacrifices and all your, all your deeds? Do you serve God because you want people to see how great you are? You know, those are the kind of things that, that can run through our minds when we think about what idolatry is. 
the, the motivations for serving God, they matter. You know, our idol isn't just about literally saying, I want to worship you, money. I want to worship you, fame. I want to worship you, success and glory. You know, that's not how people think or that's not how we couch those terms. But we, we tell ourselves little insidious lies. I'm doing this for God, but really, really, we're doing it for ourselves. Let's take a look at the last couple of verses with a little bit more commentary along the way. Verse 12, so Micah consecrated the Levite and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. To consecrate means to set apart and to designate that someone has a specific and holy purpose. However, this was a pretty much futile and pointless gesture for Micah to consecrate the Levite. His, his consecration meant absolutely nothing. It was futile. It was pointless. However, in verse 13, it goes, Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. Micah's confidence is utterly misplaced. It is as impotent and meaningless as his consecration of the Levite. He feels so good now that he has this Levite as his priest. His boastful statement might have been sincere, but it was also untrue. What was it, what was it that made him think that the Lord would be good to him just because he gained a Levite priest? Huh? What makes him think that God is going to be good to him just because he did that? Definitely didn't come from the word of God. Everything that we've seen tonight showed how wrong Micah was about his worship. His confidence came from himself, from his own, his own imagination, really. It had no basis in anything that God had ever decreed to his people. Looking at all the things that Micah and the Levite did, we see that they did a number of things wrong. Micah might have thought that he was worshiping God, but he was going about his worship in the wrong way. He went about his worship in the wrong way. He couldn't, he couldn't see it, though. He couldn't see how wrong he was. For, for us, this might play out differently, perhaps in very subtle ways. We may think that we are serving God, but deep down, we kind of expect him to be good to us because of our service to him. This is something that I've struggled with myself without even really thinking about it. You know, I don't think I really took the time to pause and consider that, consider this very deeply until I was studying this passage. And for some reason, one of the things that made me, that I thought about um, was something that happened Several years ago, several years ago, I was just watching football on Sunday. You know, I'm a, I'm a big football fan. And uh, I was watching this one game. It was a very, very dramatic game. And it, I forget, I don't even remember who the teams were. I just remember that it was the Buffalo Bills. They were driving, and they weren't a good team. But I was just watching them because I was a football junkie. Um, <laughs> They had the ball, they were losing, very late in the game, almost no time left. Basically what happened was, if they scored a touchdown on the final play, they had time for one last play. If they could score a touchdown, they would win the game. And if they didn't score a touchdown, that was it, it was gonna be over. So they get in position to, to make this one play. 
wide receiver, he gets wide open in the end zone. Quarterback, yeah, it was the Bills, but somehow the quarterback throws a very accurate, laser-sharp pass to this wide receiver. He's about to catch it, hits him in the hands, and just falls down on the floor. Then he just looks down, and he's like, what have I done? <laughs> you know? And he's just in anguish because he knows that he cost his team. Just something that's very disappointing, very heartbreaking, soul-crushing. And even if you don't really follow football or care about sports, I think it's just the concept of knowing that you totally failed at your job, doing something that most people would consider very simple or easy. And not only did you fail at doing your job, but it cost your entire team. A whole bunch of people were watching, so you kind of humiliated yourself in front of everybody. That hurts, right? That just hurts. Like, I don't want to experience that. But the thing that stood out to me is that after this game, I remember, you know, a couple hours later, I was looking at Twitter, and I was just scrolling through, and I saw that this player, the, the wide receiver who dropped that game-winning pass, he tweeted, and he said, God, I worship you, and I praise you every day, and this is how you do me? Right? This is how you do me? And it just made me think, dude, that is, I'm pretty sure I've thought that before. <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's kind of a funny story, but it, it just illustrates how easy it is to have that sort of wrong-minded thinking. We think that we're worshiping God, but we're expecting the Lord to do us some good in return? Come on, what is that? It's like we think he, it's like we think he owes us something. We think he's going to grant us our wishes if we worship him and if we serve him and if we do all these things for God, he's going to be good to us. We treat him like he's some sort of uh, like wish manufacturer or, or genie that, does, that grants our wishes if we, if we worship him hard enough. But when we live like that, essentially, we're just idolizing things that we want. We idolize what we want. And we treat God as a means to get what we want. Our idol isn't a block of wood or molten silver. But the only difference between Micah and us is that our idols only exist in our thoughts. When it comes to how we worship God, it is evident that there is a right way and a wrong way. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not gonna get into whether it's okay or not to, you know, raise your arms when you're worshiping during the music or even saying amen during a sermon. You know, I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. The simplest way for me to explain what I'm talking about is to go to John chapter 4, verses uh, 23 and 24, where Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman by the well, and he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What this means is that to worship God in spirit means we are to worship him with everything that we are. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, 
mind, and strength. And that is the same way that we are to go about our worship. There's supposed to be passion and emotion behind our worship to God. But we are also supposed to worship God in truth. We are not the ones who decide what truth is. God is the one who decides truth. He is the one who determines truth. And he reveals himself to us in his word, which is why it's important to read and learn the Bible. The more we know about God, the more we love him for who he is. We grow in our love and appreciation for his attributes and his character. And as we love him more, we should ideally strive to obey him more. As we know God better, we should want to worship him with even more passion. We have to worship God as he is presented in scripture. If we don't worship God as he is presented to us in the Bible, we're not worshiping him. We're not worshiping God. We would be worshiping a God of our own creation. That would make us like Micah. Worshiping a God that is framed by the constraints of his own personal imagination. We would, we would be like those people that confess their sins to plants. Our theology and our worship should be based on what the Bible says, not based on whatever feels good or whatever wishy-washy sentiment pervades the world and motivates people to confess their sins to plants. Our theology and our worship should be based on what the Bible teaches us. So as we wrap up our time in the Word tonight, I want to leave you with a little exhortation. I hope we walk away from this passage with a, a heightened alertness against idolatry. But how do you overthrow the idols in your heart? If our idols were made of molten silver or carved out of wood, it would be easy to just pick them up and throw them away. But our idols dwell in our hearts. They exist in our imaginations. and They run buck wild in our thoughts. But we know that they are there because we sin to appease those idols. Sometimes I know it can be very difficult to be alert and preemptively root out your own sin in your life. I know for myself, even when I feel like I'm in a state of mental alertness, there are things that I don't notice I can still be taken by surprise. For some reason, when I was writing this, I just thought of this story that happened to me um, a couple years ago. So several years ago, um, my buddy Zach over there, I'm telling this story without his permission, but he's really just an innocent bystander. But he used to live um, pretty close to me, like a three-minute drive or so, and after Friday fellowship, I would take him home, and then we would have these conversations in his driveway. You know, I would just think, you know, we'll wrap up our conversation. It'll be two or three minutes, and then I'll go home. You know, it's like 11 o'clock or maybe midnight or something. But nope, we end up talking so long, like two, three hours go by. It's like, oh man, two o'clock, three o'clock? <laughs> that is nuts. Like, how, how did the time just fly? 
And I, I just remember this one time, it was like three o'clock probably, and we finally uh, said goodnight, and I started driving home, and on my way home, I was thinking, oh man, it's getting pretty late, I'm kind of tired, I'd be really vulnerable right now if somebody, some hoodlum or somebody were just waiting outside my house, going to jump me or something. I mean, again, it's a pretty unrealistic thought, but maybe because it was so late, I just started, my, that's just how my mind wandered. So I, I was telling myself during that three-minute drive home, I'm going to be extra alert right now. I'm going to be, when I get back to my house, I'm going to check all the shadows. I'm going to look in the alley, you know, make sure that there ain't nobody that's going to sneak up on me because that would just be embarrassing. And Drew Tan don't like to be embarrassed. So I get home and put it all into practice. At least I think I do. I look in the shadows. I look in the little side alley next to my house. Yeah, there's nobody there. You know, I'm thinking, man, that was silly. Why was I so concerned about that? That was ridiculous. Like, no one hangs out in this neighborhood. It's, it's quiet. So I'm like, I'm just going to go inside my house. And if you uh, ever see my house, basically got this front gate that leads to some stairs. And then after the, those stairs, there's the front door. So I open the gate, unlock the gate, and I walk in. And then all of a sudden, there's this cat, like a stray cat that's at the top of those stairs, and it just screeches really loudly and like zooms down the stairs and brushes up past my leg and zooms past me while it, screech while it screeches. And I was like totally shocked. <laughs> I wish I could say I was just, you know, cool and collected about it, but um, I was like, holy socks, you know, I did not expect that to happen. I was totally caught off guard, totally unaware. Instantly, my heart was pounding, my adrenaline was up. I thought I was prepared for anything, but I was sadly mistaken. You know, I really thought that night, I thought I was ready. I thought I, thought I knew what was going down. I thought I saw everything that was in the darkest corners. I thought I saw everything that was in the shadows. I thought I saw what was lurking, but I didn't see that cat. I wasn't clutch. So when you think about what your idols are, when you think about how do you prepare against or fight your idols, First of all, you have to be alert. And even sometimes we know that's not enough. But we have to identify what those idols are in the first place. Sometimes it's hard to be aware of the idols in our own lives. Sometimes, sometimes we might not have that sort of self-awareness. Maybe it can help if you have a trusted Christian brother or sister that you can talk to, someone who, who knows your, your life and your spiritual health and is willing to speak the truth and love to you, that can help you identify what your idols are. But that's always the first step. And after you've identified what your idol is, then you have to confess your idol to God. We have to confess our idols to God. Pray to him. Pray to him and confess your sins, then you have to repent. We have to turn away from our sin. And we turn away not because our sin is embarrassing or because it causes us some sort of trouble. We have to turn away from our sin because we have to hate our sin. And from there on out, it's really just a process of sanctification in your own life. You have to put on the new man. You have to live in obedience. And the Holy Spirit will help you. But you must first be alert and aware. We can't fight what we can't see. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what your idols are. If we never think about our idols... We'll never do anything about them. We'll just keep on doing whatever feels right.
we'll just keep on doing whatever is right in our own eyes. And when you do what is right in your own eyes, you eventually learn that your vision is far more limited than you ever imagined. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you now and thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Micah and the Levite, the lessons that we can learn about them, the lessons that we can learn about idolatry through them. I pray that you help us to recognize the idols in our lives, help us to recognize even the subtle, insidious lies that we tell ourselves that deceive us into believing in these false idols. Help us to recognize those so that we can overthrow them. Help us not to live in a way where we do what is right in our own eyes, but help us to live in a way where we do what is right in your eyes. I pray that you would guide our understanding of scripture so that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray for forgiveness for the times that we fail and mess up. I pray that you help us to change, help us to be better, Lord. Help us to love you more and hate our idols. I pray for your blessing upon the rest of this night and the fellowship that we have in Christ. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.